Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from City University, London. On this episode, we'll be talking to William Viney, who's written a new book called Waste, a Philosophy of Things, which is published by Bloomsbury in 2014. Cool. So, uh, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm really uh, delighted this week. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from City University, London. On this episode, we'll be talking to William Viney, who's written a new book called Waste, a Philosophy of Things, which is published by Bloomsbury in 2014. Cool. So, uh, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm really uh, delighted this week, uh, on this episode, to have William Viney with us. Uh, He's going to be talking about Waste, a Philosophy of Things, which is his latest book, published by Bloomsbury in 2014. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Um, and it'd be good to start off um, with a bit of background, both about yourself. Uh, you're currently at Durham um, in the Department of English and Medical Humanities, and you're a Leverhulme uh, Fellow there. That's right. Um, but also a bit about the, uh, the background of the book as well. Well, um, the book is a long time in the making, and I never really know um, when to begin these sorts of biographies, but, the, but maybe the quick way of, of saying how I've got to be writing this book begins at Sussex University, and it begins by doing an, a, a joint honours degree in English literature and development studies, development studies being PPE and in, in the so-called developing world, and that allowed me to read um, read a lot of Marx, and it led me to read a lot of critical cultural theory, and it let me read economics, and um, that was so important in giving me a kind of sense of what kind of work I really enjoy doing, which was, you know, in the end, kind of capacious. I like capacious subjects. And I then did a master's in English studies at Durham, and that reminded me that, that I, as much as I like being a kind of literary critic, or the idea of being a literary critic, there is something intensely restrictive to when your subject is bounded by a particular media. So... I decided I wanted to do a PhD. I did a, I did a master's thesis on, on waste in the work of J.G. Ballard, and I decided that I wanted to do a PhD on this thing we call waste. I thought that I had more legs. And so I came to London, and I ended up doing a PhD in, in Cultural Studies and Humanities at the London Consortium. And there I was encouraged to just write and to follow... Uh, my chosen object of study into all the places it's ever been. And that was terrifying and liberating at the same time. So what, if this book is anything, then it's a testimony to a, a sort of delirious through, through a few years, kind of coursing through various London libraries, finding out about where waste resides and what it's done and what it's meant to different kinds of people. 
because it, it's at once very eclectic um, in the examples you range across and, and some of the um, the thinkers, but also it, you know it, it has a relationship to I guess what for me was the sort of traditional field of literature. It's interesting you can manage to combine um, the two, so you know. People like Elliot or, or Joyce mm. juxtaposed with, um, and I have to look them up because I'm very un, unfamiliar with them. Uh, you know, ruins in Mexico and, and stuff yes. like this. So, um, and I guess that kind of both traditional English lit subjects and its eclecticism is around this slippery idea of waste, and also links back to your discussion of things like economics as well, because mm. you talk a lot about. Um, that in the introduction to the book. So I guess the place to start is, could you define what waste is? Well, the, the work um, that I set before me in, in writing the sort of, the, the kind of theoretical uh, chapters would come earlier in the book, I wanted in a way to redefine what waste is and does to try and wrestle it away from some of, some of the sort of Familiar ways of describing what waste is. So, if I could just describe what those familiar ways might be, and then try and and, and, and then try and say what I try to do with the concept of waste and how it might kind of course between these very yeah. different objects. And these familiar ways are the kind of I guess the spatially um, that's correct yeah. bounded or, or kind of grounded ideas. Yeah, and, and and very very much to do with with um, with dirt and filth and um, hygiene. Tremendous amount of books published in the last thirty years that that relate to um, questions of contamination, and contagion, and filth, and they're terrific and they're very interesting. But let's face it, we we discard or we do not want, we reject material, um, both aspects of ourselves and aspects of our environment that have nothing to do with being dirty. Um, and likewise, there are many people all over the world. Um, that do not have this, um, I think, rather kind of Northern European re- re- uh, kind of gut reaction to say um, shit yeah, or yeah, yeah. cum or blood or whatever. I, I grew up on a, a dairy farm in the middle of uh, rural England, and um, my father would come in on a regular basis for breakfast, and I said, Dad, what's that on your forehead? And he said, I don't know. I said, I think it's cow shit, Dad. Why don't you take that off before you have breakfast? I said, yeah, good idea. And I think that there are lots of people around, you know, um, who don't have, the, the, I suppose, the power necessarily or the desire to organise their, their world into clean allotments of space. It seems to me that dirt isn't very useful as a definition of what waste is. Now, my kind of theoretical intervention into the con- concept of waste was to try and bring time in. Now, for me, we can't have concepts of waste without also bringing in time, without also trying to describe what time is and does, and also responding to how our physical environment kind of makes time, yes. how we mark and measure our operations, our desires, our projects with this stuff that we surround ourselves with and maybe it fails but maybe it just comes to some completion we eat the banana we peel the banana we eat the banana and we're left with 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 with, with this yellowy stuff well we could do things with it we could make art with it yeah. or we could not we we think in terms of processes and those processes for me are very 
temporal and they're very much do, to do with the way in which we tell stories. So in a way, what I try and unfold in those first chapters and then through the case studies that, that dominate the rest of the book is to try and describe how narrative and time enclose one another around descriptions of our engagement with certain things or certain assemblages of things. Good, because narrative actually is, is a crucial, um, almost kind of um, device you use, um, you know, you kind of insist on its importance. Um, and it struck me as being um, in the current situation we find ourselves where there are kind of big questions about the role of humanities, these kind of things. It struck me that narrative was something that you were juxtaposing against kind of political economy um, or these, I guess, more sort of social scientifically mm-hmm. um, influenced ways of thinking about waste. Well, that, that, you know, should we say in a kind of crude sense, you know, statistical analyses produce, you know, data and evidence that often then need to be interpreted into stories and yeah. really made, made sense of. And they, they made, sometimes they're produced from kind of people's storytelling kind of habits. And then they produce data that then need to be interpreted. So narrative here, at least in my book, and I'm aware that it is almost all things. And that's that, that's something to be suspicious of. I'm suspicious of it. And I, I make narrative something very close to thought, but without necessarily just being thinking. We learn how to tell stories. We become experts in storytelling. We are trained to tell certain kinds of stories and tell them well or tell them badly to deceive people. But um, this question of narrative is um, is something that kind of binds the book together. Mm. Um, it is something that comes out of perhaps my more formal training in literary analysis and interpretation. It's also something that is supported by by social sciences, by especially by um, you know uh, new studies in um, sciences of mind. Um, there's a there's a tremendous literature in um, more analytic forms of philosophy on the importance of narrative for selfhood. It's a big debate. Um, it's not something that I I adhere to too strongly uh, as a debate, but it's um, it's it's in the ether. You find it very much. Um, uh, in, in, in conferences that are trying to compare very disparate subjects or objects, I often find that storytelling, narrative, um, the reproduction of stories, their translation and adaptation into different media is sort of there, um, even if it's not necessarily made explicit. So I wanted to, that to be kind of upfront in yeah, the way yeah. that I wanted to, to use narrative to, as a sort of guiding device and also as a discussion point vis-a-vis matter, things, and time. I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting that kind of, um, those two important points about the book, about narratives and time. And I think this ties into one of the, um, the major theories that you were very interested in, which is Martin Heidegger, who obviously you know is very famous for his work on time and you know time as having a whole range of roles uh, in his work. And what sort of role did because um, he, he's amongst one of many uh, theorists you, you touch on? But what what sort of role did his ideas have in the book? Mm, the, he, he enters into the second chapter where I I want to do some more um, some more focused work on analyzing the moment at which we realize waste has occurred. And 
you know, and, and many um, Heideggerians will know this, uh, and, and any, many non-philosophers will know, it's become a sort of um, primal scene for thinking about matter, material, and also finitude, and, and the history of existentialism and phenomenology. This question of the broken tool, the broken tool analysis. And there's Heidegger doing his imagining the, the use of the tool and then the tool breaks, and, it, and what that reveals is, is the, what he calls the contexture of the world, the, 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 the greater network of objects and environments that are supporting this focused activity. That the object kind of recedes from view until it fails. Yeah. Now, that seems a very pertinent to the discussion of of waste, and yet it seemed to follow a particular story. Use the object, object no longer works, light up. All the references, uh, referential, contextual of the environment, whatever you want to say that is. And, and I thought to myself, well, you know, and it's, and it's a simple objection, and many people, other people have made it. Um, well, it depends on what kind of hammering you're doing, what kind of hammer you have. Yeah. Your expectations, your your the projection of your, the successful work of the hammer depends on all sorts of things, and it relates back to what I was saying earlier about us being um, being uh, highly trained in storytelling and storytelling with objects. Now, I I know this is maybe the perhaps the more kind of controversial side of my my argument, which is to say that the stories just that don't just kind of happen in our heads, and that we you know, just dump them out in language. No, we formulate our sense of events, times, durations, projects with these concerted and skilled dealings with things. And that's a particular the, the hammering tool experiment is a very is one amongst other a, a number of other sort of thought experiments that I examine. Um, so yes, absolutely, Heidegger is very important. Um, I like to think that he gives me one version of how waste might come to be, mm. and there are others that yeah. I like to, to discuss elsewhere. I mean, one of the ways uh, I think it, it sort of stood out to me was um, in kind of some of the language you were using. So some of the ideas early on in the book are around things like use time and waste time. And um, I think you give a really clear indication of what you're talking about here with the, the kind of the story about the shoes. Yes. Um, and obviously, you know, listeners can read it for themselves, but it might be interesting to kind of explore use time through that story of the shoot. Yeah, yeah that's right. Kind of slightly ridiculous um, uh, idea, but I wanted to, 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 to take, having done some sort of theoretical descriptions of radio about what I want the book to do, I, I wanted to give a sort of example. So I take this example of having a pair of shoes, and I want to, at, at that moment, try and describe what I call in the book use time, to try and distinguish how use has a different temporality to waste. Now, using things, when I take up a pair of shoes, I do kind of, we enter into a kind of contract with shoes. I mean, people talk to themselves. I don't talk to my, my, my shoes, but if I was, I was gonna, I'd say, right, mate, right, here we go. Like, you and I, we're going to go and do something. I'm a, I'm a, for instance, I'm a runner. When I pick up my running shoes, I want them to do what I want them to do. And in a way, because they're built in a certain way, they're crafted with a certain understanding of what I expect of them. 
they kind of have this affordance for that particular expectation. So we'd have this sort of dialogue. When I'm running down the street, I can feel that give and take. In the end, whether it's a single run or a thousand runs or whatever it is, those shoes are going somewhere. They are in this sort of bounded relationship to time. They have a finitude. They're orientated towards this particular project. They have, have an end in terms of use and design. They have an end in terms of time. What happens then when my shoes fail? Well, that's a bit like you know Heidegger's yeah. uh, hammer. Well, you know we may enter into a different kind of temporal relationship with these shoes. So I no longer think of them as having this sort of bounded relationship to dime. And yeah, they also seem to speak of all the potential uses that they no longer have. So they're kind of like you see the phrase, they, they're things that have come to be by having been, you know, they're kind of redundant but still lingering on. And one of the things I really wanted to insist on when it came to this sort of rather kind of phenomenological, I suppose, description of shoes was to say, well, what if I never use them? Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you don't use shoes. It's not something that said, you know, maybe in a in a certain decadent way, but let's not think about shoes. What about um, a, a bunch of nails? You know, we buy some nails, do some hammering, you know, do some hammering. What about that? We never talk about the nails in this thought experiment. Only about hammer. But we we may have some leftovers, and we're not going to use them. We know we don't want to use them. They're redundant. They're obsolete. They're waste. And yet they haven't actually entered into in its kind of convoluted story of of use and projection and use time. Yeah. yeah. And yet they've entered into this. More dy- not necessarily more dynamic, but more convolved, more mixed. They have a past, but their past isn't what their future could have been. They are temporarily mixed. And the, the definition that I give for waste objects is this sense of being mixed up in time. They're neither for something, they're not necessarily late, retarded, or, you know, Redundant. They can still be used as nails, but they're waste to me. So it's dealing with that um, that sense of temporal confusion that I think marks waste becoming um, as a category. Now, what that offers me as a as a sort of mobile set of coordinates, you know, use time on the one hand, waste time on the other, is a sense of sort of a structuring. A structure that we work through, and I I try then and apply those concepts to our objects, mm. to literary works, to built ruins or or, or follies or or, um, or or buildings that have been destroyed, whatever reason, and they're porous and they are reversible. You know, one can take those old pair of shoes and use them for something. You know, uh, string them up as an art object or give them away to someone else, uh, keep them as a memento of all those runs that you've ever done. Um, This is the sort of thing that I'm working through. They might crisscross in and out of uh, use time, waste time. These are not didactic um, kind of uh, categories, and they have a very, very complex relationship with one another. But, yeah, that's really where I'm going to that. I suppose it's almost the kind of final moment in the introduction where you set forward one of the last kind of destabilizations of these um, both sets of literature and ideas about waste that you're aiming to take on in, in the, uh, the later parts of the book. You know, so we have that sense of 
waste is not spatial, it's temporal as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, waste must be thought of as being not just about I've used something, once I finish using it, therefore it becomes waste automatically. It's not automatically yeah. linked with consumption. Yeah. A lot of studies of, of trash and rubbish yeah, and so yeah. on, one cannot think of waste in contemporary times without thinking of, of capitalist consumption. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, is capitalism ubiquitous all over the globe? Do we, every time we take up with an object, are we only engaging with its use, exchange value, and so on? I mean, has waste existed as we know it prior to, I don't know, whatever you want to yeah. cast a time you want to cast as, as, as the, the emergence of capitalism? Yeah, because you talk about the, is it the history of the word, you know, goes back to sort of old English almost. Yes. It's, you know, it, it has a, a much longer. Um, history of usage than just being as, uh, I suppose, garbage would be the, the other term that's important to the kind of yeah. academic studies that you're uh, that's right. critiquing. Uh, yeah, waste, I mean, maybe this is another way in which I've tried to cast waste in, in a new light, is to try and take waste and stay with the, with the word waste. And there are other people who are interested in, they call, them, they call it discard studies, or trash theory, or garbage studies. And I think, fine, you know, we, we, we take our different words and they have different uses, I think. But waste seems to me particularly interesting. It's the word that, um, that the early parts of the uh, Bible, when translated into English, it was uh, the earth was described as waste and void. Not trashed and void or rubbished and void, but but waste. The, the sense that waste can come is a condition that comes uh, prior to and after a particular um, particular process. But also waste um, from from the Latin vastus, you know, which shares a root with with vast. You know, it gives me at least a sense of, of um, something deterritorialized, something that is not located in particular spaces or places, but is, you know, let's face it, our entire Earth is running down in energy. The sun is only going to burn for so long. We're in a state of entropic decline. I, I want to be able to have a, sub, a subject and an object that describes both the process and the singularity, both a process that courses through... Um, that courses through uh, many, many different centuries, but also describes a particular event or a particular encounter. So how does all of this come together then in the rest of the book, where you use you know, a quite eclectic range of examples from uh, you know, discarded manuscripts for, um, for USCs to sheds that have been blown up, um, and then to... Um, paintings or etchings of uh, the Bank of England being built as a ruin mm-hmm. before it has actually been uh, constructed and, and uh, as you mentioned earlier you know you have the kind of uh, the work on sculptures the work on uh, literature um, and then the work on architecture mm-hmm. maybe if we could take them in turn so you give examples from Cornelia Parker's work yeah. and then Mark Dion's um, sort of archaeological artistic intervention um, with the Tate yes I, I Maybe rather um, conservative me, but I, I wanted to take two artists there who had used um, what I consider waste material and used them kind of with with quite some focus and without necessarily trying to insert themselves 
into a, a sort of art historic art history of sort of found objects or or ready mades although of course they're sort of readily inserted into that art history they seem to be working with waste material to do something new with it one of the things I was struck by as I was writing the book was that waste is novel to us it's something that is all around us all the time you walk down the street I'm actually looking in this room now and I've got the leftovers of lunch and I got to see this newspaper kind of in the corner and it's that waste things can be kind of kind of pointed out all over the place and yet it can be incredibly novel to us and it doesn't matter we don't have to sort of really um, transform our, ourselves or you know and it's in a great kind of way to sort of find waste kind of fascinating who smoked that cigarette before it became a cigarette bar on the street you know what's that doing there why is that bicycle being thrown in that canal and so on you know we, we can always ask questions and like of, of, of things you know on the street or, or in, our, in, our, in our houses but then we come to an art gallery and that novelty is still there and it's both drawn on and sort of worked with and Dunn and, and Parker they're both they're both working with a sort of set of expectations a sort of energies if I can be kind of yeah. obscure for a moment kind of a set of energies that are already in the material as waste and I was really interested in, in something that that uh, Cornelia Parker said about her work which is that she works with cliches she works with work that already has a certain set of ideas kind of attached to it such as you know the idea of the garden shed you know, place of refuge of storage of private contemplation or whatever and she literally explodes them she then lets that debris held on, on and very delicately held on the string and in the tape collection, which is just such a fabulous and well-known piece of work, yeah. and um, and and she says that she she that the work already seems to be doing something for her. She's just simply rearranging these objects. The, the objects are doing the legwork, which seems fascinating to me, particularly when it comes to waste, where legwork, you know, is sort of run. They're kind of run down. Excuse that. Uh, they, and Diane, you know, he did this sort of archaeological digs on the Thames and he found all this stuff that comes to those riverbanks in whatever way, you know, through the, 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 the flow of river flow and its particular kind of tidal um, process and, and mechanism there um, in the Thames, but also, you know, you find in the, in the cabinet where he then stores all this work, um, credit cards, yeah. ID cards, and and uh, and met- messages in, in bottles, and it's an extraordinary kind of cabinet of curiosities that, that stores and contains waste. In both cases, I wanted to stress that these objects are both objects to which inspire stories, i.e., whose whose message. Um, is that, you know, who, who, who cast that bottle into the river for it to be found mm-hmm. as well? And what kind of shed? Whose shed? What did the, the, the British army think who, who helped to explode the shed? You know, they're, they're provocations towards story, but then story seems to be already interlaced into it. And that's because, partly because we have this sense of different, a differential of time. You know, these things are no longer kind of for 
what they were for somehow. They kind of, but they persist, and we can recognize them. Here are the shards of, of, um, of pottery. Uh, when I went to take Britain with my grandmother, who's an art historian, she could pick out the different um, potteries by the maker's mark and the kind of particular pattern. She said, oh, that's that, and that's that. And for me, you know, opening this drawer and looking at the shots, they're just shots, yeah, they're colourful, yeah, you know, yeah. arranged according to colour, but, you know, different people have different stories to tell, but the stories are sort of already laid in the, in the work, in, in the objects, in the material of the objects, and in the art objects. But this idea of sort of um, time and potential and um, what objects are kind of carrying with them, but then what they, they possibly might be in the future... Um, the previous stories and their new stories obviously has a connection to um, the discussion of the works of literature in the book but it's also quite interesting how this plays out in architecture because um, your two chapters on architecture um, which are very interested in uh, in particular interested in ruins mm-hmm. um, are not sort of um, meditations on the built environment um, but capture both uh, real places and spaces as well as more kind of architectural theory. So how do these um, ideas about time and waste play out um, in architecture? Well, it, it, it's again, it, it becomes rather, I mean, it's not formulaic, formulaic kind of um, uh, attachment or, or, um, uh, or reading uh, of these sort of concepts of use time and waste time to into sort of built in, um, built environment and landscape and in, in buildings, it's actually it's where kind of these these ideas really get tested out. Um, they get tested out in a different medium in, in, in sculpture, literature, and architecture. In those architectural chapters towards the end, the arguments, as I set them up at the beginning of the book, they get frayed and they get strained, and I and I'm, I like that. I'm, I'm kind of I want to see the undoing of the concept of waste itself. And then in the end, with the, the final chapter is about kind of thinking about future ruin, about imagining spaces that may be uh, lived in currently, but, but, but may, know, may in the future be uninhabitable for whatever reason. And I, and I kind of collect lots and lots of different examples from film, from, from um, fantasy and science fiction literature, and also from architects and their own um, attempts to imagine their buildings in states of future states of dilapidation and ruins, both the sort of consummation of their architectural project and also as a sort of horrific um, warning to uh, those who have, you know, custody over um, certain um, cities or certain buildings in those cities. And where we end up is is with a, a story. Um, relatively well known by Richard Jefferies called After London and there a, a, a traveller sort of future it's sort of in that sort of H.G. Wellsian kind of um, frame of, of, of sort of early science fiction uh, drama I suppose and, uh, and Felix goes in, in search of, of London he's heard rumours that there was this great metropolis and it's all sort of cast into the future where the whole of um, Society has been cast back into sort of feudalistic, uh, something that you'd kind of recognise from sort of Game of Thrones or something. And uh, Felix goes, sort of young and disenchanted traveller, goes and 
search of London. He finds not much that would he'd recognize um, as a city or what he'd heard of the city, but he finds a lot of dust. And it's, it's, it's really, um, it's this dustiness and this dissolution that each section, so each section, of, you know, two chapters in each section, so each, after each section, we come, I try and bring us to a point where we're trying to understand what might be the dust of sculpture, the dust and the, the sort of silty kind of disappearance of literature and likewise of architecture too, and they follow this kind of odd kind of um, arc, I suppose, where at the end I want to ask the question, well, waste is not a permanent condition. Um, we, we, all of us, human beings, pass into states of sort of material kind of uh, incoherence. We become, inc- become inchoate uh, bodies, mixed bodies, dusty things, where somehow we can't recognize the passing of use time or the structural kind of complication of waste time in a particular object. It's just stuff, and it's that just stuffiness. I'm really interested in, I haven't, there's, there's, there's an extra ch- few chapters to, to add on. Um, I didn't, I couldn't edit it on this particular version of the book, but but each one tries to work over well what would be the end of waste? And where does end where does waste sort of disappear? I, I was gonna um, bring us back actually to um, to Elliot's and Joyce, but actually I think that question of what would be the end of waste is well, it's a question it's a similar question to what would be the end of literature. Mm-hmm. It's quite an interesting one to uh, to sort of conclude on actually. It's a, to try and understand what the, the known unknowns are. Um, dust might be a kind of um, a useful thing, I think, when trying to mark out what we don't know. Is this where you're going next, or are you doing something sort of completely different in your medical humanities um, work? Yeah, are, you, right. are you carrying these themes on? or Yeah, I, I, I think... One of the unexpected things about about publishing the book was that, <laughs> and thank you very much for doing this. Actually, people read it, and then I don't know why it comes as a surprise, but it does. I'm surprised that people read it, and that then that then I have get invitations to do interviews like this, which is great, and it keeps the whole project alive. And I'm still thinking very deeply about the set of problems that I raise in the book, but actually, no, I I joined Durham a few years ago, and I joined their Centre for Medical Humanities, and that was to begin a project on human twinning. And it's a project, and I'm taking a kind of, again, to go back to sort of something I said earlier about, about trying to follow objects into objects of study wherever they might go, and so I'm trying to chase twins into wherever they've been or they're going. And, and that means that I'm doing a lot of work on the history uh, and philosophy of biology. Uh, on um, particularly, I, I, I work quite closely with a, um, a genetics lab based in London, and I'm very interested in in um, molecular biology. And what was unexpected, and when I began with this sort of new work on twins, is that I'm coming back to things, but I'm coming back to a, a set of things that I didn't really write about, which are 
perhaps more kind of human things, um, particularly um, amino acids, uh, structures of proteins, and um, that kind of more molecular view of what we might be or how we might work and those substrates that have become so important to the way in which many people across the social science and humanities are, are turning their way their, their, their gaze towards well you know what are what is the molecular basis shall we talk of bases anymore or do we need to move towards a more structural or complex systems analysis of our bodies and our behaviors um, twins have always Ways. I have to qualify this. They, they've been present in, in um, Greek um, myth and uh, religion, uh, equally in, in, in um, African um, traditional uh, worldviews and creation myths and stories. That's where the story begins. Um, but they have also t- taken majority stakes in. The, uh, the history of genetics and eugenics and now molecular genetics and behavioral genetics and uh, there are about 1.5 million twins enrolled in formal research programs worldwide. Twin studies is a big business and I'm interested in the way in which twins are recruited into these projects. So the brief, that was a long answer. The quick answer is not really. Not really. Not really. They're very involved. They're very separate books. But and, but uh, there is an exchange, a set of a set of principles there. One is sort of the research methodology into kind of being slightly reckless with my curiosity. And second is to do with matter and material, which doesn't seem to be going away. It seems to be increasingly influential across. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and will that be a new book? It is, yeah, yeah. It will be a new book. And at the moment I'm writing kind of shorter articles, but there's a book in the pipeline there, and it, it's going to take some time. Of course, of course. Great. Well, I look forward to, uh, to reading them. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. This episode was discussing Waste, a Philosophy of Things by William Viney. I've been your host, Dave O'Brien. Thanks for listening.